0: In 2016, uh, you guys might remember because it wasn't that long ago, but the Cubs won the World Series, which broke the 108 year drought Uh, that many people, including probably some of uh, your family members, longed to see happen. Because how long did we live through that phase of there's always next year, right? And so 2008 came and it didn't have to wait till next year. It happened that year. And I remember we were uh, the Uh, Game seven was on a Wednesday night, so we had youth group in at Sugar Grove, and and we were streaming the game uh, for that night, and we all stayed till the end of it. There was the rain delay and everything, and so it was late by the time this game finished up. But the joy and excitement when the Cubs got that final out was just something incredibly special. Um, and then after, of course, after the uh, Cubs win the World Series, just as every championship team does, uh, they come back to their home city, and they have this big celebration and this big parade. Did any of you guys go to the Cubs championship parade? Me either. But <laughs> it, it was something, apparently, to behold. So believe it or not, uh, the, the championship parade for the Cubs ranks number seven in all time in the attendance um, in human gatherings. Number seven, all time. The most people attend. Now, to build on that, it's the largest gathering ever recorded in the Western Hemisphere of people. Can you believe that? The Cubs winning the World Series. Now, here's the thing. When you watch the Cubs play away games, um, even when they are away... Um, you see lots of Cubs fans in the in the crowd, so they, they travel well apparently. And you got all these people converging to celebrate this team finally winning a championship. So the biggest uh, gathering in the Western Hemisphere—it is the largest gathering of people that was not for a religious event. Now, you might some people might consider being a Cubs fan a religious activity, but as far as official records go, it is the the largest non-religious. Um, event where people gathered together. This was a an event to behold. You see the pictures, and it gives me anxiety looking at the pictures online. If you wanted to later, don't do it now, uh, but you could go, just Google Cubs Parade, and it is just full of people by the masses, because you have this great historical team that is coming. We are celebrating the fact that they have won perhaps one of the greatest series ever, right? That is going down in history. I want to invite you this morning to turn to Psalm chapter 24. We're taking a, a one-week break in our uh, series on Philippians. We'll be back into that next week, but today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 24. Now, uh, Psalm chapter 24 was written uh, in tandem with uh, the account that takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And you might be thinking, well, what in the world you just throw off uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6? I don't know what that is. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we are given the uh, the story of David leading a group of people to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, starts out with saying that David went and he uh, gathered the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 men. And they went and they got the Ark of the Covenant and they're bringing it back uh, to Jerusalem. And it's in this that David is said to have written Psalm chapter 24. And and we uh, don't read Psalm chapter 24 as a song per se, but this would have been a chant or a a song that they would sing as they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Something uh, triumphal, something to celebrate, something to commemorate. This is a huge event for the nation of Israel. We might ask the question, well, okay, what was so significant to them about bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem? And the significance would be that the Ark of the Covenant, if you're not familiar with it, served as a representation of God's presence. It was actually the place that God would come and reside with his people in in the tabernacle or in the uh, temple. And so uh, for the nation of Israel to have this uh, Ark of the Covenant coming back would be so exciting because it would be as if God was coming to dwell with them again. This was a super uh, special and significant piece that they were excited to bring back into their midst. And so they celebrate the fact that as they're coming in, here we're going we're gonna to read what this, this song or this chant would have been. All right, let's look to Psalm chapter 24. 24. David writes, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are excited to open up this passage and into get a taste of the celebration that was taking place as as the, uh, your people were able to bring the ark of the covenant back to jerusalem Lord, i pray that you would help us to understand a even just a glimpse of that significance a glimpse of that joy a, a glimpse of that celebration that we would experience it ourselves and we too would would uh, sing out who is this king of glory the lord of hosts he is the king of Lord, I pray that in the moments to come, that you would speak truthfully, you would speak powerfully to us where we're at. Lord, our desire in our hearts is to grow in our relationship with you, to deepen our knowledge of you, to experience you in greater ways. And so I pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified in the moments to come as we unpack this passage just a little bit. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You get a little bit of that feel for that excitement, right? As Imagine that, right? It, the Cubs parade as the, the team is coming down the street and people are hooping and hollering, yeah, Rizzo, Bryant, whatever, all these guys who are part of this team, you've done it, you've finally done it. We are bringing the World Series trophy to Chicago. This is something exciting. Now, We don't really have an article in in the religious faith today that we would be like, we need this in Shabbana or like we need this in uh, America or wherever it may be. But the gospel itself is something worth celebrating. And so as these people are rejoicing in the fact that they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to their own dwelling place, they are thrilled. They are thrilled that God has provided a way for this to be there again. That they are thrilled that God will be dwelling in their midst again. They're excited about this, and this is worth rejoicing over. And so, the the heart of these people is to to be with God. The heart of these people is to uh, to worship God. This. King of Glory that they speak of as they chant their way back into the city of Jerusalem. And so this morning I want to look at uh, what it is to worship this King of Glory. What is it to worship this King of Glory? And and David helps us uh, see a couple of different things. If we were to break down uh, this passage. And so we're going to look at a reality that David points to. We're going to look at a response that we're supposed to have to this reality and then a result that comes uh, as a part of our response uh, to the reality. The first of which I want to look at is the reality. David says that if we're going to worship or appreciate being in the presence of God, we need to stop and acknowledge God's character. We need to acknowledge God's character. He starts it out right away in verse 1 and he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. At the very beginning of this song of praise, this song of celebration, David stops and he recognizes the fact that the God that he loves, the God that he worships, is a sovereign God. God is a sovereign God. God. What does that mean to be a a sovereign God? What David is affirming here is that this is not some God that is ruled by other uh, powers, be it physical, be it spiritual, whatever. We serve a God who is sovereign above all of them. And the reason for this, David says, is because he's the one who created everything. Not just a part of the creation, not just uh, different components of it, maybe not even just the idea of creation, but he himself created everything. So David says, Therefore, he is sovereign in rule over all of it. Now, and we're going to throughout today's sermon look at the uh, experience that the Israelites would have had in some ways with other deities um, that other that people around them would have been worshiping and that they would have been exposed to. We're not in specific, but the ideas that come with it, and this is significant when David speaks of uh, the sovereignty of God, because uh, many of the other religions of the day believe that their gods, little g, their deities that they worshipped, were sovereign. But that they were only sovereign over different components of creation; they were only sovereign over little parts, not the whole of it. So think about it. Even the, let's let's go just directly to the uh, Egypt, right? When the Israelites are in Egypt, how many different gods did the Egyptians have? Tons. And you look at the different gods they have, and it's said that even the ten plagues that took place and as a part of the deliverance of the nation of Israel was a, a demonstration of God's sovereignty, His power over the Egyptian deities to prove to the Egyptians that that is not the true God. But I am. And so as, as we look at this, we see in the different gods that the Egyptians worshipped, this idea they had a sun god, they had a cattle god, they had a, a god of fertility, they had a, all these different they, they created a different god for all these different components of life. But David says our God's not like that. We don't need to have 10, 20, 30, 100 different gods. We have one God and he is sovereign over all of creation because he created it. He rules over it. He is not bound by anything. He himself is all-powerful, all-knowing, and totally sovereign. And as we begin to look at this uh, character of God, it helps us to start there and say, man, we need to have to worship this King of glory, to appreciate, to really cherish the gift that he's given us to dwell in his presence We need to have a really high view of God. The higher the view of God that we have, the greater the humility that we'll have when we come before him. So David starts it off and says God is spectacular. Throughout this psalm, if you were to jump down to uh, verse 8, he's, who is this king of glory? The Lord. He's strong and mighty. Uh, the Lord is mighty in battle. David says, first off, our God is sovereign. He rules over all things. And he says, our God is also super strong. right? Our God is super strong. And the word here used to say that he is strong is the, the closest equivalent in the Hebrew language to what our word for hero would be. right? We, we have been living in the, the age of heroes in recent days, there has been movies coming out about superheroes. Uh, in, in the past, maybe it was you, you, maybe as a younger person, you remember reading comics or, or watching cartoons of of superheroes and the excitement that it brought. These these powerful beings that would fight against evil and use their good nature to to conquer the evil forces around them. They all, there's something unique, you know. If I were to ask you, what is your favorite? Superhero. Who's your favorite superhero? You could probably think of an answer. Because even if you didn't uh, get into superheroes, I'm sure you know who they are. You could list a couple. And so in a sense, what David is saying here is, listen, our God is strong. He is like a hero. He is a hero. And you know what's uh, interesting is you look at uh, superhero stories, right? Ingrained in these stories, this is idea that the hero doesn't fail. The hero triumphs, right? It, it, there's this, uh, it's a weird thing as you, if you were to watch a Marvel or a DC movie because you don't expect the hero to die. You don't expect them to fail. You, you just kind of know at the end of the day they're, they're going to win. When the going gets tough and there's no possible way they're going to defeat their enemy, their foe, You know, you just know they're going to find a way. They're going to conquer. And this is the attitude that David is bringing to our God. Our God cannot be defeated. Our God is powerful. He will overcome. When the going gets tough, he's still strong. He cannot be crushed. And we see this even in the cross, right? When when in that moment, perhaps the devil would think, man, we got him. We got him. Jesus has died on the cross. He he overcame it. He rose from the dead. We you cannot defeat our God. He is powerful and mighty in battle and uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, as they're bringing this back into the city of Jerusalem, it, it was a, a thing that they would carry with them into battle at times that would help them uh, win, as if to say, hey, look, we have God with us. God's going to help us win this battle. And so they're probably seeing this, saying, our God is mighty in battle. Now we're like unstoppable because God is with us. Because God is with us. We have a powerful, powerful God. And then he moves on. Our God is sovereign. Our God is strong and powerful. And he says our God is just spectacular. Our God is spectacular. Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And I, this is one of those verses that, on the face value, we seriously miss the picture that David is presenting here. I'm going to throw up on the screen. Uh, this is a picture of a man standing in the ruins of an Egyptian temple. And you can kind of see in the back going across the top is, is a large piece of stone that goes over the entrance. And that is actually the gatehead is what they would call it to the entrance of this temple. And so when, when David is saying, lift up your heads, O gates, he's essentially saying, lift up the gatehead. Because here's, here's where that, that idea of foreign deities that the, the nation of Israel had been exposed to. The bigger the entrance and the bigger the temple, the bigger and more powerful the God was that was being worshipped there. As if to say, hey, I need this much space to enter into this temple. And so when David and all these people bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and they say, lift up your head, O gates, that the King of glory may come in, they're essentially, what they're saying is, here's the picture. You can't even put a top on the doorway to get our God in. That's how great he is. You guys put gateheads on your gates to enter the temples for your gods. You can't even do that for ours. You gotta lift the gateheads. That's how great and powerful and mighty and spectacular that our God is. Our God is a, a wonderful God. He's an amazing God. And he cannot be confined by human limits. In Acts, it talks about uh, God not being limited to or dwelling in, in buildings made by human hands, right? And we we understand this. That You don't have to just come to this place to be in the presence of God. But God is um, everywhere. He isn't everything, but He is everywhere. He is with you wherever you go. God is not confined by anything that we can build, anything that we can create. He is far greater than all of it. A.W. Tozer uh, is quoted saying, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We have to have a high, high view of the God that we serve. And we have a high view by understanding who He is. This relationship with God is not simply an intellectual pursuit. It is a relational pursuit. There is something with whatever uh, hobby you are into... If you were to meet the greatest person in that field, you would probably, unless it's you, maybe it's you, um, you would probably feel a sense of, of humility and a, a sense of awe to be in their presence. I don't doubt it when the Cubs were coming back to Chicago. They had kids and even grown men flocking to them for just a signature. When you think about it, there's something significant to the greats. And when we understand who God is, his character, it will give us a high view of who he is. And so it leads us to the last thing that David points out about the character of our God. He says that given that God is sovereign, given that he is so strong, and given that he is so spectacular, our God is set apart. He is set apart. We've sung songs this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? To be holy is to be set apart. And, and David says, asks, or poses the question in verse 3. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? God is so great who can stand in his presence? Who can enter into his presence? And when uh, David is talking about this, he's really asking the question, who has the right to be in the presence of God? Who has the right? And when we have that high view of God, that, wow, look how magnificent and amazing he is, it helps us understand our own shortcomings. But not in the sense of like it's going to kick you while you're down, but in the sense of, wow, such a great God has loved me so much that he has created a way for me to be in his presence. I can be in the presence of this God always? I can enter freely to the throne of grace because of Jesus' blood? Amazing! I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. And so he poses this question. Who can, has the right to be in the presence of God? So when we look at his holiness, it leads us to the next part of appreciating uh, what it is to worship, what it is to be in the presence of this great God, that we, we've acknowledged his character, and now we adhere to God's conditions. This is our response. The reality of looking at who God is, our response to who God is, is to adhere to God's conditions. If you were to look in Second Samuel chapter 6, it's only the first few verses that, that start off with, oh, we're getting these 30,000 men, we're going to bring this, uh, this Ark of the, the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and then it quickly moves to the story of a guy named Uzzah, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. You're probably familiar with it. Uzzah was a man as they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant it started to, to tumble and tip and so in, in good heart I believe, I can't judge the guy's motives, he, he reaches out and he touches the Ark of the Covenant, which is forbidden by the way, uh, to touch it directly to prevent it from falling and when he does this, God becomes angry with him because he has broken the conditions in which men are supposed to enter the presence and treat God and so God strikes Uzzah down dead now, David gets upset about this because he's, he's trying to help, but Uzzah had broken broken the conditions in which God had set before his people. And even when you look in, in uh, the response in verse 4, this is where uh, David, in a sense, answers the rhetorical question in some ways that he posed in verse 3. Who has the right to stand in God's holy place? In verse 4, he says, He who has clean hands... And a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That's who has the right to stand in the presence of God. And so if you were to look at the requirements where of a priest, the, the Ark of the Covenant would sit in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the, or the temple. And only the high priest, and once a year, would go in there, and he would have to make all kinds of purifications and sacrifices to make himself pure in the eyes of God. And even then, they would tie a rope around his ankle that if he went in there and was impure in any way, God would strike him down, dead, on the spot, and they'd have to drag the guy out. There was very high standards to enter into the presence of God. And so as David is looking at this, remember, they are carrying the Ark of the Covenant back. He's saying, who has the right to be in the presence of God? Well, remember, the law says that you have to be perfect, blameless to enter into the presence of God. So that's what David is saying here. He's looking at the requirements of what it is for a priest to enter in the Holy of Holies. That is what is necessary to enter into the presence of God. And so David outlines a couple of things, and he says, "Clean hands, a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false, doesn't swear deceitfully." So if we were to put this into maybe some, some modern vernacular that's going to be easy to remember <laughs> maybe, uh, will be to say, David says, we need to have right affections. Let's start there. We need to have right affections. He who has clean hands and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false. Does not lift up his soul to what is false. When you saying? to worship God, to not be deceived by that which is false in our world, to be drawn away by what is deceitful, to be consumed with what isn't true. I think of what we'll uh, come across in a few weeks in Philippians 4:8 when when Paul is saying whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is trustworthy, right? Think about such things to set your mind on what is true. That the love of your life outside the people sitting right next to you would be God and what is true about God. What makes People so angry is when lies are shared about the God that we love, the God that we worship. We need to know the truth. Who is this God? David says we need to have the right affections to enter into the presence of God. I would add to this that in verse 6, he says, "...such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob." Sometimes people will come and they will seek God, but what they're really seeking isn't God himself. They are seeking God's blessings. As if God were that means to an end. If, I, if I'll seek him, then he'll give me all this good. This is really what I want. I want all the good. I, if I could skip God, that'd be fine. But David is saying, listen, those who are blessed in the eyes of God, those who have right affections are those who seek God himself. Seek the face of God. And this is an encouragement for all of us at times to not become consumed with what can God give us, but to become consumed with who God is. And examine your prayer life. This will tell you where you're at is your are your prayers consumed with god help me this god solve this god here's all my needs and what portion of your prayer time is consumed with the the splendor and awe the amazing god that we serve the amazing god who loves us and just affirming who he is and saying god you are so great thanking god for all that he has done for who he is what part examine your prayer life If your prayers are all help, 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 then my guess is you're skipping over the who God is and coming to what God can do for you. Let us examine and and seek the face of God. Seek Him first. And then David goes on. He says, We need to have right affections. We need to have right attitudes. We need to have right attitudes. Who shall stand in this holy place? Clean hands, a pure heart a pure heart it starts with your love it moves your attitudes working from the inside out what are your attitudes towards those that are pure I think of uh, you guys ever had McDonald's it's good in a pinch right you swing by quick drive through get some food and let me tell you it smells so good right and I'm hungry right now so this is even worse. But you get that McDonald's bag, the paper bag in your car. Oh, those fries, they anyone hungry for lunch? And, and you're so excited to eat that McDonald's, and then you you eat it, and in that moment, in that moment, it tastes so good. It just it's like feeding what you need. And then about two seconds after you finish, you're like, oh. Why did I do that? This is horrible. I feel like junk now. I just want to go lay down. You're like, I need to go on like a cleanse to get all this nasty out of me, right? What is inside, what we dwell on, changes how we act on the out. You have to start in. And that's why Paul, I believe says in Philippians to dwell on such things. Because what we'll do is, because David's also going to point us to having right actions. He has clean hands. He's, He's saying, listen, you need to be pure and righteous in your moral behavior. God has called us to moral purity. But what happens sometimes is we start with the moral and the right actions, and we expect it to lead us to the right affections, and we'll go right actions, right attitudes, right affections. But it's the other way around that God calls us to, because you cannot have right actions without first having the right affections. It starts with the inside, it starts with your heart, and works its way out. Jesus says in John 15 that if you love me, you will obey my commands. He doesn't say, if you will obey my commands, then you will love me. He starts with your affection, your love, and it grows from there. And so we need to be careful of this because uh, in Paul's writings to Timothy, he says sometimes we have the tendency to uh, re-enslave ourselves, to put a yoke of slavery back on us to say, hey, you know what? We can have the tendency to, to skip that affection even now as believers and only look at the moral and right actions and become consumed with this. And it is a yoke of slavery, he says, that is there to condemn you when you are not doing it out of your affections for Christ. It starts with your love of the person of Jesus. You see where David's looking at here? It is a pursuit of God that is going to lead you to moral uh, purity. But that is the requirement of God. Cheap grace is is something that has come out of the theological movements in the past and and cheap grace will tell you that, listen, it doesn't matter, God has forgiven you now, it doesn't really matter anything else. It doesn't matter if you live your life differently. It doesn't matter if you uh, make Christ the Lord of your life, but he has forgiven you. Now, you essentially have your get-out-of-jail-free card, um, get-out-of-hell-free ticket in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what cheap grace will teach. But costly grace will teach us that God has sacrificed his own son, Not so that we can abuse that and say, hey, I'm going to go on living in a life of sin because at least I know I've got my uh, hell-free ticket. But costly grace will help us to look and say, listen, I appreciate the grace of God because as I pursue the righteous life that he's called me to, I'm going to fail. I'm going to stumble. My affections are going to be drawn other places at times because I am weak in my flesh And it is in those moments when I fall short that I appreciate the grace of God, that He doesn't condemn me. The costly grace of Christ. It is there to support you in your shortcomings, not there for you to abuse it and say, hey, uh, who cares about what Christ has done? But no, to pursue holiness with God. To pursue holiness with God. And so David has said to appreciate this presence of God, to appreciate this worshiping of the King of glory. We look at his, uh, his character, we uh, adhere to his conditions, and then, and then there is a result that we acquire God's rich charity. Verse 5, he, that the person who is completely morally pure from the inside out, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And sometimes this is like we were talking about a minute ago, where we start or where we try to finish, but uh, when we are seeking God Himself, The results are a secondary benefit that God will bless us because as you examine the moral requirements, the conditions that God has put to be in His presence, you cannot meet them on your own. That is the purpose of the law to show us that we need a Redeemer. That is the purpose of grace that we can stand up in it. Christ has come that we have received His righteousness. We cannot adhere to the conditions that God has put forth on our own. This is why David, even here, is speaking of a salvation. A salvation, a deliverance that God has given to His people. When God has given you the righteousness, He has counted you worthy, not because of yourself, but because of His Son. And then we get to experience the great blessings of God in this life, even now even now. We don't have to wait for eternity. We don't have to wait until uh, death takes us from this place to experience the great goodness of Christ, to experience His blessings, that even today we, we gather here and we sing praises to Christ. We sing praises of how great our God is. We get to experience His leading and guiding us in our lives. We get to experience those wow moments right when you're like, God really put that together and I get to praise Him for that. We get to experience his encouragement as he lifts burdens off of our shoulders that we can't lift ourselves. We get to experience the great blessings of God. But we don't experience the blessings without going through God's path, the conditions that he has predetermined. And listen, this is because when he is sovereign, when he is as great as he is, he gets to create the rules by which we have to follow And he has the right to do so. And then, when we follow those rules, we don't get to come to God on our own terms. He says, this is how you worship me. This is how you come into my presence. And we praise him because he laid out the full requirements as seen in the law, and then he sent his son and said, listen, you can't do that. This is ridiculous in a sense. I'm going to forgive you of your sins by my son bearing the wrath. You're going to receive his righteousness. I'm going to create a way for you to enter into my presence even today. And so we stand and we rejoice in the fact that Christ didn't come to abolish the law, but he fulfilled it. And then in his fulfilling it, he has given us righteousness that that you and I today can enter into the presence of God now as we sit here on your way home, when you get home, in the middle of the night, when you wake up and you can't sleep, in the middle of your difficulty and your trial, you can go to God and he is there with you. Not because you had to do anything, but because he has done everything. We come to God on his terms. On his terms. We serve an awesome God. We serve a powerful and amazing God. And He's set the the expectations. He's provided a way. And we rejoice in the salvation that he has given to us so that we could go throughout our days and not have to be carrying an Ark of the Covenant around to say, lift up your heads, O gates, so that the King of Glory may come in, but that we could say, look at my life. Look at the King of Glory in my life. Look at what he's done in my life. Look at what he's continuing to do. I am a walking, living testimony of God's grace, his mercy, and his love. You say, let the King of Glory come in. Let the King of Glory come in. He may be worshiped. He is the King of glory, the Lord of hosts.